0: This show may contain words that would offend the sensibility of certain habitués of monasteries. It's Wednesday, July 24th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pascoe. So what to talk about today? I mean, I could mention that Boris Johnson officially met the Queen. I'm not going to discuss that. Okay, Uh, then maybe how about... Meek Mill, he's getting a new trial. And I'm not going to discuss that. Okay, uh, I got another one. Uh, Bison attacks nine-year-old in National Park. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. What? The headline there, are Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. I mean, I know technically it's Yellowstone, Bison, Buffaloes, Florida, nine-year-old. Man, not as consistent. But you know who is consistent? I'm not going to discuss that. Okay, I got it, Bob. We shall be talking today about you. That's correct. And about your displeasure with appearing before Congress. Correct. And would you say that your design was not to lie or mislead, but also not to do anyone's work for them, like, say, the Democrats? Uh, That's correct. Wait, hold on. Are you trying to horn in on D.J. Khaled's game, you know, where he says, another one? That's uh, an—yes. That's correct. So Mueller's— Correct. Correct. Is the new another one? Another one.
1: Another one. Uh, That's correct. Another one.
0: Correct. Another one. That's correct.
1: Another one. Another
0: one. On the show today, a little bit more substantive or even substantive analysis of the Mueller testimony. Remember how going in I said it's not going to be the game changer that some hoped, but maybe the new question is what is the game to be changed. I actually have no idea what that means. I do know that almost nothing new got said. Well, maybe one thing, and I'll discuss that in the spiel. But first, let's think of a topic that is the most remote from Robert Mueller testifying before Congress today. How about a group of cowboys attending a Wyoming rodeo in 1908? And you know what? Let's make the cowboys Hawaiian, all right? And then maybe we can even ask if they call a chuck wagon a poi wagon. And I'm not going to discuss that. Okay. Okay. I went too far, but not so far that we don't have the authors of Aloha Rodeo, Three Hawaiian Cowboys, The World's Greatest Rodeo, and A Hidden History of the American West. Because we do. In fact, we have those authors. David Woolman and Julian Smith are up next. This is one of those pitches that, you know how in an elevator pitch you need a couple sentences to interest the listener? There's two words, Hawaiian Cowboys. Tell me more. Well, the name of the book is Aloha Rodeo. The subtitle is Three Hawaiian Cowboys, the World's Greatest Rodeo, and a Hidden History of the American West. I'll give you a little more, more details. These Hawaiian Cowboys, wait, how? We'll get into that. Go to Cheyenne, Wyoming when? 1908. And out? cowboy the cowboys. The authors of this book are David Woolman and Julian Smith. Welcome, gentlemen.
2: Hello, this is David. And this is Julian. How'd
0: you guys find out about this story?
2: Well, this is David here, and on a vacation to the island of Hawaii, I was visiting this small little museum in the town of Waimea, and it's a museum that celebrates the history of Hawaiian cowboys, or peniolo, as they say in Hawaiian. And I saw this uh, small plaque commemorating the events of the 1908 Cheyenne Frontier Days uh, when three Hawaii- Hawaiian cowboys traveled 4,000 miles to go compete. And, you know, we're talking a little plaque and maybe four, possibly five-sentence summary of how they went, they kicked butt, they went home, they were celebrated, the end. Mm-hmm. And when I saw this thing, I was just hit with you know dozens of questions right off the bat that really uh, ignited my curiosity in in this whole adventure who were these guys how did how did cowboy culture get going in the islands uh, what was it like for them in wyoming and and that's sort of what where this whole project began
0: yeah and you sell it to your friend who's a uh, fellow writer based in the same town who's neither hawaiian nor wyomingan
3: exactly yeah we we worked together for a long time <laughs> uh, our last piece was about warring ice cream truck drivers down sure. in salem so sure. we knew we worked together well and Yeah, we decided to tackle a book together.
0: Yeah. So before we start with anything, how did horses come to Hawaii?
2: Well, it started first with cattle and then horses maybe 10 years later Mm -hmm. or so. The cattle arrived in Hawaii at the very end of the 1700s. Uh, as a gift from the British crown to the king in Hawaii to try and uh, improve relations between uh, Britain and what was then known as the Sandwich Islands uh, after Captain Cook's ill-fated visit to the beach on the the west coast of the island of Hawaii. That was about 15, 20 years earlier when he had been killed there. And so the cattle were a gift from George Vancouver to the king— And the king immediately put a taboo on anyone trying to harm these couple of animals that somehow had survived this arduous journey across the Pacific. And they reproduced like crazy. And in a matter of two or three decades, Hawaii, the island of Hawaii, had basically an an ecological emergency on its hand with thousands and thousands of feral cattle with these five, six-foot Um, racks, these deadly horns, just running roughshod all over the islands, and they realized they needed to do something about it.
0: Yeah. (laughs)
3: God. And what did they do? So they sent to uh, the New Spain, which is now Northern California, Mexico. Uh, They knew that there were vaqueros out there, the Spanish version of the cowboy. And so they brought three of them over to Hawaii to basically teach them how to manage these these uh, feral beasts so the vaqueros taught the Hawaiians basically how to how to rope how to how to manage all these animals and so that's actually where we get the word paniolo which is kind of a Hawaiian version of the word Espanol for Spanish. So within a few decades, you know, the Hawaiians took to it like uh, lightning and pretty soon there was this tradition of Paniolo cowboys in Hawaii.
0: So it does seem to me, since this, uh, the, the book is constructed around this one competition, what you essentially have, if you're just looking at it through the prism of the competition, is that these unknown outsiders who are probably a little bit discounted and seen as, if anything, a novelty, show up. But what the cowboys were probably pretty proud of themselves and descendants of you know Wild Bill and Buffalo Bill what what they don't realize is that their competition has essentially been training at altitude or the or the cowboy version thereof they have had their training and their experience is exponentially harder which if you know anything about competition
2: will probably give you an advantage right i mean and what's what's really delightful about this story is it's dressed up as an underdog tale but it it isn't once right. you realize where <laughs> the hawaiian cowboys are coming from and just how good they were
3: yeah it was it was really interesting to look through a lot of these old newspapers uh, the old coverage of around cheyenne and so it, this had been going on for about 10 years this was at the time the biggest rodeo in probably in the world and for for the first 10 years of the competition the wyomings cowboys pretty much cleaned up at least in the steer roping competition so, yeah, when these Hawaiians showed up, the, the attitude was basically, yeah, they're, they're interesting. We're glad they're here. It shows we, you know, we're drawing people from 4,000 miles away. But there's really no way they're going to have a chance against the local boys. Yeah. Uh, but, but over the three days of competition, you can even see it in the newspapers, that coverage basically changed from, you know, more or less, aren't they cute, to, okay, come on, guys, let's put them in their place. And that's not what happened.
0: How did the Hawaiians even hear about and want to come to Frontier Days? which is this cowboy, this uh, calf roping and cowboy competition, rodeo competition.
2: Right. So the story comes to a head in with this 1908 competition at Frontier Days, but the, the pieces were put in place the previous year. Uh, in 1907, this personality from the islands named Eben Lowe, who was a one-handed cowboy uh, who had lost his hand in this roping accident uh, in the late 19th century, he was traveling throughout uh, the, the States And he visited Cheyenne and was in the stands watching the steer roping competition in 1907. And he thinks to himself, essentially, you know, my my cousins could beat these guys. And before that competition has even concluded, he's already invited some Wyoming cowboys to come to Honolulu for a rodeo show that he was putting together uh, for December 1907, which, which, uh, which happened. He also was laying the foundation for his cousins to come attend uh, the 1908 competition, which, of course, um, is sort of the, the climax of our whole story.
0: Yeah, and tell me
2: about uh, who his cousins were. So his cousins, uh, Ikua Purdy, Archie Ka'awa, and Jack Lowe. Uh, and these guys, they're not only are they cousins, but they're descendants of royalty. Uh, and Ikua is really, you know, he, he's really the archetypal, um, quiet, taciturn cowboy You know, show the world who you are by way of your actions, uh, not your mouth. Uh, He did say to one newspaper once that real cowboys don't carry guns. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of his family members who we've talked to always said, like, no one ever saw him miss with his lasso. No one ever saw this guy miss. And so he came to Wyoming, and, you know, we— our impression of his experience there is that this was an adventure for them in the travel sense of it, but it was never going to be this heart-stopping kind of stress or pressure on them. You know, rodeo sport was like a, it was like a weekend thing to do with a shrug for these cowboys. You know, their work was so dangerous over such difficult terrain. So then to show up in this nice, tidy rodeo ring, it was like, well, sure, I'll go chase a couple, a couple of steers.
0: Was it Challenging or was there a way for you through modern eyes to have to almost, I would imagine, and there are some quotes that coverage sometimes tended towards the, let us say, racially insensitive or over-reductive or not quite understanding what's going on with the uh, Paniolo, like uh, them talking about cowboys and Indians. That's not ex- an exact uh, analogy. So what did you do to sort of, um, I guess, translate that for modern sensibilities?
3: Well, yeah. When you're looking at these old sources, you really have to take into account the the mindset that they were written in. Uh, you know, back a hundred plus years ago, back you know, the San Francisco papers, the Wyoming papers. Yeah, there was definitely a lot of racially tinged condescension, we'll call it. Right. And on top of that, the the interesting part is that ten years before Hawaii had been forcibly annexed by the United States, that so we basically took over the islands. And a lot, not many people in the U S were actually aware of that at the point. And so for Hawaiians, it was a, it was a hugely symbolic act for these guys to come all the way to the mainland and compete. But to Americans, these Hawaiians were foreigners. They they didn't really, it didn't really register that they were actually Americans. So there's a lot of, a lot of terms they throw around in the paper. You know, these, these foreigners are coming to teach uh, Americans a lesson uh, and there was a, a, a lot more uh, derogatory terms they used, but they, you can tell by the end they definitely uh, earned the respect of the locals. Even though there was there was definitely a good bit still of uh, you know oh they got easy cows you know they if our boys had done such and such they would have beaten them. There's a little bitterness, but there was definitely a lot of respect.
0: <laughs> easy cows, classic easy cows.
2: <laughs> and I'll, I'll let me just add a tiny bit to that because you know, one of the things that attracted us to this whole story is that it was such an interesting and uh, and painful time in Hawaiian history. And, and likewise, a really fascinating time in Cheyenne, you know, with the so-called closing of the frontier. But if you think about annexation, right? So here you have these outsiders forced to be insiders because their kingdom has been stolen. Then they're invited to compete in this competition where they are totally treated like outsiders. And then, of course, um, you know, they they best the insiders you know sort sort of like this topsy turvy thing but what's been so rewarding about this whole investigation and this project is just thinking about these really binary and simplistic ways of looking at the American West and cowboys and Indians and as you said and this story just completely turns all of that on its head
0: right but but even even your protagonists are right Irish immigrants or come descend from
2: they're they're nuanced, you know. God God forbid, you know the story and the stories of these people are are mixed and messy and complicated. So yes, Ikua Purdy, his uh, grandfather had arrived in the early 19th century from a ship. We're not quite sure if it was bound for Botany Bay, Australia, where um, prison the um, Criminals from England were being sent. But uh, Purdy gets there. He builds this stone cabin up on the mountain that kind of looks today, the, the um, remnants of it kind of look like something you'd see in the Irish, Scottish, uh, the Irish countryside. But he marries a Hawaiian. And so, of course, all of their descendants are, are Hawaiian-Irish. And then, of course, and then more admixing and more admixing the way, the way everybody does in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah.
0: What's the legacy today? Are you telling Hawaiians something that a lot of Hawaiians know, and just alerting the rest of the world, or was your book is your book being uh, received as new information, welcome information in Hawaii itself?
2: A lot of people in the islands know of this story in broad strokes. The way we were writing this book is for an audience, you know, in in Illinois and Delaware and Georgia and Arizona and Hawaii, and so. Um, there are aspects of kind of Hawaiian history or Hawaiian landscapes that we're um, breezing over to kind of keep the narrative moving but so far people in the islands are really delighted with the product and you know I'm sure it's imperfect and I'm sure there's some people out there who who aren't so thrilled with it but right now we're hearing from people you know thank you so much for for doing the work. you know. So, for example, there's one of the, the great-grandsons of uh, Archie Co., uh, one of the three guys who went to Cheyenne. I, I sent him the manuscript. Uh, he lives in Pennsylvania. I wanted to see what he thought of the thing, and I was pretty nervous about what, how he would respond to this and even just welcome our involvement in his family story, period. And uh, he was just delighted with the thing. And he really just kept saying to us, thank you for doing the work to dig up so much detail about the story. Because, of course, I grew up hearing a very um, kind of brief summary of what had happened and we were proud of it. But no one knew all these all these details that you you've unearthed. And so that, of course, really feels good. Yeah.
0: And great job on Aloha Rodeo. Three Hawaiian Cowboys, the world's greatest rodeo, and a hidden history of the American West. I just looked it up, and it's it's exactly what you wanted to do. It's number four in Delaware, so congratulations, guys! <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> David Wallman and Julian Smith. David Wallman, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, Julian Smith. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. You know, if in the future one day someone were to ask me, Mike, how do you define irony? I just might play this tape. I- I'm having a little problem hearing you, sir. Uh, that went a little fast for me. You went, w- I'm pardoned? And I might say that the definition of irony rests on the fact that all of that was said in a congressional hearing. It turns out that when a 74-year-old has zero interest in interesting his audience, he is not going to be the most compelling figure. True. As luck would have it, a septuagenarian who doesn't want to be there, in fact, who has an active interest in suppressing any charisma he might possibly have, but probably doesn't even have a lot of, that guy will not be radically changing the national discourse. It's true. True oh, wait, guys, wait, guys, I can't believe it. I wanted to announce this to you because maybe you've been looking for it. I know I've been looking for it. I didn't know where I put it, but I found it. I found the needle, and do you know what? The needle is in the same place that I left it, the same place since April 18th when the Mueller report was fully released. What do you know? Mueller's press conference that provided videotape of Mueller not going any further then the report itself didn't move the needle. It's still in the same place. And this morning's hearings before the Judiciary Committee didn't move the needle. And this needle, it even remained immobile in the face of this afternoon's Intel Committee hearings. Magnetic though Robert Mueller is. Not that the hearings weren't without their moments of scintillation.
1: So I have a question for you, Mr. Mueller.
0: This is Mike Turner, Republican of Ohio.
1: Mr. Mueller, does the Attorney General have the power or authority to exonerate. Now what I'm putting up here is the United States Code. This is where the Attorney General gets his power and the Constitution, and the annotated ver- cases of these.
0: Now, what Rep Turner has done is stack books on the dais next to him, just stacking up textbook after textbook. There's the Constitution. His is thick, hundreds of pages, weird, mind fits in a breast pocket, bad visual. So he has these four law books, law books, actual law books containing the law, staring back at Robert Mueller. What do you think Mueller's going to say? Remember, It's not just a question that he clearly has no interest in answering. It's that question plus four textbooks next to a congressman. Let's see if Mueller can refrain as he so clearly wants to refrain.
1: Mr. Mueller, nowhere in these, because we had them scanned, is there a process or description on exonerate? There's no office of exoneration at the attorney general's office. There's no certificate at the bottom of his desk. Mr. Mueller, would you agree with me that the attorney general does not have the power... To exonerate.
4: Uh, I'm going to pass on that.
0: Ooh. Oh, he somehow wasn't drawn into your trap, laid with an Elmer Fadidian complexity. How did he refrain? Luckily, Rep Turner asked him that question.
4: Uh, I'm going to pass on that. Why? Because it uh, embroils us in a legal discussion, and I'm not prepared to do a legal uh, discussion in that arena.
0: Oh, snap. Not even with the books to augment the subpoena. Would Mueller take the bait? Hold on, hold on. Let me find the needle. Let me look at it again. Nope, still hasn't moved even after that. What is it, made of stone? If it were made of stone, it wouldn't be affected by magnetism, so that might explain things. Then there was the time when Mueller was asked to do a rough approximation of a thesaurus, another book. Do you think Mueller would engage? Here was some questioning from Doug Collins, Republican of Georgia.
1: In the colloquial context, are collusion and conspiracy essentially synonymous terms? You're going to have to repeat that for me. Collusion is not a specific offense or a term of art in the federal criminal law. Conspiracy is. Yes. In the colloquial context, known public context, collusion, collusion and conspiracy are essentially synonymous terms. Correct? No. If no, on page 180 of volume one of your report, you wrote, as defined in legal dictionaries, collusion is largely synonymous with conspiracy, as that crime is set forth in the General Federal Conspiracy Statute 18 U.S.C. 371. You said at your May 29th press conference and here today, you choose your words carefully. Are you sitting here today testifying something different than what your report states?
0: Well, I'll break the tension. In case you are wondering, Mueller stuck with what he said in the report. And the needle stuck with where it was. The needle has still not moved. Yowza! That said, as the needle is staying there immobile, there were one or two or maybe even really just one moment that meant something a little extra than what we have gotten from the written report. And I will play this. I will play this in full. This was Mike Quigley, Democrat from Illinois, questioning Mueller.
5: Director Pompeo assessed WikiLeaks in one point as a hostile intelligence service uh, given your law enforcement experience and your knowledge of what WikiLeaks did here and what they do generally, would you assess that to be accurate or something similar? How would you assess uh, but, what WikiLeaks does?
4: Uh, absolutely. And they uh, are currently under indictment, uh, but, He's Julian Assange.
5: Would it be fair to describe them as, you would agree with Mr. Director Pompeo, that's when he what he was when he made that remark, that it's a hostile intelligence service, correct? Yes. If we could put up slide six.
0: And now Quigley is reading Trump displayed on a screen.
5: This just came out, WikiLeaks. I love WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, October 10th, 2016. This WikiLeaks stuff is unbelievable. It tells you the inner heart. You gotta read it. Donald Trump, October 12th, 2016. This WikiLeaks is like a treasure trove. Donald Trump, October 31st, 2016. Boy, I love reading those WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, November 4th, 2016. Any of those quotes disturb you, Mr. Director?
4: I'm not certain I would say.
5: Uh, How do you react to that? Uh, well,
4: uh, it's probably tr- problematic is, is an understatement in terms of what it display, displays, in terms of uh, uh, giving some, uh, I don't know, hope or
0: some boost to... What is and should be illegal activity. That was something. That was not nothing. And it wasn't as if what Mueller was testifying to was nothing overall. It was just mostly redundant from the very important report that he spent a lot of time writing. I do think it is true that if most of the American public really understood what was in the Mueller report, most of the American public would be more incensed than they are. It's also true that it takes a lot to actually get the attention and the comprehension of most Americans, especially when forces of disinformation within our own media and our own government are actively involved in making sure that attention and comprehension don't occur. I just do not believe that the means and method of bridging that gap from should know to do know is a congressional hearing with a reluctant And purposefully uncharismatic witness. Granted, it also included a rapid barrage of fact-based questions, some yes or no answers, more demurals on those questions, the referencing of statutes, and a recitation of the law. It does seem like a super engaged person's idea of how a super unengaged person might become engaged. We're not even a super unengaged person, just a regular person. I mean, do I think the average American is stupid? And I'm not going to discuss that. Fair enough. I just don't think much breaks through these days. And I further do not think that this was the means and method of changing the game or moving our old friend the needle or taking all these falsehoods and turning them into what is true. Yeah, true that. And that's it for today's show. Pierre and Daniel Schrader produced the Gist. Is one of them a little better than the other? Uh, I'm not going to uh, 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 get into that. On what next? They'll be talking about this too. They sit right next to me. We were we were enjoying the heck out of Robert Mueller not wanting to testify. The Gist, you know that Bison video. It really is kind of wild. You should talk about that. Um, Peru, de Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.